This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It might not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but trust me, it's the one you need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and I will be your captain for today's episode, which is our 31st. Joining me today is the double trouble dosage of history professors, Amir Rose Davis at Penn State, and Brenda Elsie from Hofstra, and freelance sports reporter extraordinaire, Jessica Luther. Hello, friends. Hey. Good morning. So quite a week. Did anyone see the big news that broke on Friday morning? Of course, we're talking about the World Cup draw here. <laughs> what else? What else can we be talking about? Ooh, what else? Nothing else happened, right? Nothing else happened. <laughs> can you say Brenda rigged? <laughs> I'm a little bit stunned by it. I mean, I know I, I, if if there was a way to rig it, it would look like this. <laughs> So I, I'm not saying yet it's rigged, but I'm saying it. Give one example like for people like me who don't know. Right. What's one example of the rigged? Okay, so Russia. The- <laughs> 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 sorry, 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 Brenda. You no, go. No, you no, go. no, no, no. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, the very first game of the World Cup is going to be one of the most. I don't know, strange. Uh, there's also England, who's facing Belgium, Panama, and Tunisia. Now, oh, so but- <laughs> like that's a pro-England draw. Yeah, I mean, yeah. All, I gotcha. All the, I mean, all the draws seem to be pretty spaced out in terms of here's a strong team and here's three that aren't. So it's it's strange in that way. But then again, you know, I mean, I don't know. Statistics tell you it's possible. Very unlikely, but possible. Well, look, we will be talking about the World Cup plenty more in future weeks. But this week, that's probably all you're going to get. I apologize. (laughs) Now, later on today's show, we're going to be discussing the broader implications of a ridiculous week in the Tennessee football coaching search. And then we're going to be throwing the kindling onto the burn pile and celebrating our badass women of the week. But the first half of our show is going to be dedicated entirely to the Larry Nassar case, which is the biggest sex abuse scandal in U.S. sports history. We've talked about it a little bit on the show, but it's been a while. So as a refresher, at least 150 people have come forward with allegations against Nasser, who served as USA Gymnastics team physician during four Olympic Games and was a faculty member for 20 years at Michigan State's College of Osteopathic Medicine. The past two weeks, Nasser has been in local Michigan courts. Last week, he pled guilty to three counts of first-degree criminal sexual assault conduct charges in Eaton County. And two weeks ago, he pled guilty to seven counts of criminal sexual conduct in Ingham County. In July, he pled guilty to federal pornography charges, and his sentencing hearing for the federal charges will be this week on December 7th. A couple of days ago, I had the privilege of talking with the two women who I believe it's safe to say are the most responsible for putting Nasser behind bars. Now, we're going to play this interview for you all and then have a short group discussion about it before moving on to the rest of the episode. But a couple of notes. First of all, it is a little bit longer than our usual interview segments. So hang in there. And also, it does get graphic in parts. So this is a trigger warning. There are descriptions of sexual assault against minors. In the episode description of whatever podcast app you're using, we will put in the second sentence a timestamp for where this interview ends so that you can jump forward ahead of it if you're not in a good space to listen to it right now. 
There are also some technical difficulties that impacted my intro. So we're just going to jump right into this interview right after the bumper music. This is my talk with the award-winning investigative reporter for the Indianapolis Star, Marissa Kwiatkowski, and Rachel Denhollander, the first woman to publicly come forward with allegations against Nasser. Now, Marissa, I want to start with you. So last August, along with your Indie Star colleagues, Mark Alasia and Tim Evans, you published an investigation called Out of Bounds. It was about how USA Gymnastics had failed to report cases of sexual abuse. I think what most people don't realize is that this Indie Star investigation didn't even mention Nasser's name, but it was focused on the systemic problems at USA Gymnastics. How did that story come about? And for you, what was kind of the most startling thing you uncovered about these policies that USA Gymnastics had or didn't have, as the case may be? So I had been working on an investigation into why schools had failed to report allegations of sexual abuse to authorities as required by law. There have been a couple instances here in Indiana in both public and private schools where the officials had learned that someone was sexually abusing or having a sexual relationship with a student, and yet they had not reported it to authorities. And as I was working on that, I had someone reach out to me and suggest that I look into USA Gymnastics and that they had a policy that was similar to what I was investigating. And they pointed me toward a lawsuit in Georgia, which is really what started this investigation. I flew to Georgia and got almost a thousand pages of records, including court documents, pieces of depositions, motions, things like that, and came back. And then Mark Alicia, Tim Evans, and I started digging through them and really digging deeper into it. And I think really what set that apart, you know, people have reported about sexual abuse in the sport of gymnastics for many years. That's not something new. But for the first time, we showed that USA Gymnastics had a policy of receiving sexual abuse complaints and not reporting them to law enforcement in every case. And we found multiple instances in which those individuals did not report to authorities. And then those coaches went on to abuse other gymnasts. Okay. So Rachel, you're living in Louisville, Kentucky right now. I know you're a mother of three. It's been almost 20 years for you since your encounters with Nasser and since that abuse. Where were you when you saw this this Indie Star profile investigation, excuse me, come out? And what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I was doing laundry, actually. (laughs) I had my little one-year-old on my back and it was, I had to pull up my computer to send an email to someone and it happened to be trending in my, in my newsfeed. And so I pulled it up and I read it. And yeah, the, the first thought that crossed my mind was I was right. Nobody would have listened to me. And the second thought was, and if they have files on their coaches, maybe they have a file on Larry. And this is the time. It needs to be done now. And so I immediately emailed Indie Star within minutes of reading the article and told them what had happened and, and it said, you know, I, I will do whatever I can if you can uncover this. You were 15 years old, a club level gymnast. Who recommended you to Nasser? And, and what do you recall about when you first met him? When did it when did you realize that something that this was inappropriate? You know, I was recommended to him by another club level gymnast, um, but everybody knew who Larry was. You know, he was a household name. Everybody had seen him carry, carry strong off the mat at the 96 Olympics. And, you know, he was affiliated with, with Get Arts Twist Stars. So, you know, a really prominent gym in Michigan. And of course he was, you know, teaching and, and working at MSU, which is a, you know, a huge school in Michigan, a big 10 school. So I was very familiar with who Larry was and we all considered it a privilege to have access to, to the doctor that treated the Olympians. So when I, you know, when I met him, I was, I was glad to be able to be there. He was, he was very skilled. He was very warm, very caring, very gregarious. He really made you feel like you could trust him, like he was going to take care of you. So I was seeing him for my wrist and for my back. And he would, in the first visit, he told me that he would need to do myofascial release for my back and that he needed to rotate my hips because they were out of alignment. 
And so he would, during the, the times that I would see him, I saw him every couple of weeks to about once a month for almost a year. On most of those visits, he would penetrate me with his fingers vaginally, sometimes anally. There was external genitalia contact, but he was he was very skilled in how he did it. He really is a, an excellent case study in how predators are able to gain access to their victims. My mom was actually in the room for every visit that I had with him, which was part of the dynamic that made me think everything was all right because... The idea that someone could sexually assault you while your mother watched was just, it just wasn't even in the realm of my, you know, my thought process. But what I didn't realize was that Larry was positioning me so that my mom couldn't see what he was doing. So my impression was that my mother knew what was going on. And so it must be all right. But she didn't. And I didn't know that. Did you talk to anyone about it at the time? And throughout the years, have there been any more thoughts about reporting it? I did not report it at the time. I actually did not realize the full extent of what had happened to me for for years afterwards. One of the last visits that I had with Larry, he turned me on my side and he went up my shirt and he massaged my breast and that I knew was sexual assault. But that was the first time that I had questioned what he was doing. You know, the procedures he was doing were they were awkward and they were embarrassing and and I didn't like them. But my thought process at that time was, first, I I knew that internal pelvic floor work actually could be a legitimate technique. I knew that from a friend of mine who was a physical therapist completely unconnected to Larry. So I had that category in my mind when I went to see him. So my presumption was, well, this Larry must be doing this internal thing that my friend told me about. And so I had that category. And then beyond that, you know, my thought process was, if this isn't legitimate, somebody would have spoken up before me. Right. And if somebody had spoken up and there was any question about what Larry was doing, Michigan State and USAG would never allow him in intimate contact with young girls. And I I relied directly on that belief that he never would have gotten to me. He never would have been allowed in intimate contact with me and with all the other girls he was seeing if there was any question about his medical technique. And because of that, I, I assumed it must be legitimate medical treatment. Now, after that last visit, one of those last visits, when I realized that part of what he had done was assault, that was all I really realized at that point. And as the years progressed, I started questioning, you know, could there could there be more? Is it possible that there is more that I didn't realize was abuse? And so I began researching internal pelvic floor work. And the more I researched, the more disturbed I became because nothing that Larry had done to me resembled legitimate pelvic floor technique. And so a few years after that, I started talking to some physical therapists and I didn't give them a lot of details, but we talked a little bit about the protocol and they were concerned. They were very concerned about what I reported, but I really didn't fully realize and wasn't really able to say this was all sexual assault until very shortly before I came forward. And in fact, I got a big surprise during the investigation because my presumption when I reported was that Larry was trained in internal pelvic floor work, that he was assaulting girls under the cover of his training, under the guise of of being certified to do internal work. So when he came out and responded to my police report and responded to Star and responded to the Title IX team and said, I don't do pelvic floor work, I'm not trained in pelvic floor work, that flipped my world upside down because that that was never even in the realm of conception for me. So that that moment when I read his response to the Title IX report and to the police report and I read Indy Star's story and I read his response, that was when I fully realized the depth of what had happened because up to that point, I thought he was still operating under the guise of at least some form of legitimate medical treatment. But there was none. God. There was none. Marissa, I can imagine that the reaction to the out of bounds, the first investigation must have been overwhelming. At what point did you did you see Rachel's email and hear her story and start looking into Nasser? Well, we received her email. I mean, I think it was within a few hours of publication. It might have been like 1030 in the morning. And at the time, it was just one of many. I mean, we received many, many tips about individuals or other coaches who had also, you know, there were concerns about their conduct or there were other survivors of sexual abuse who had reached out to us. And so Mark and Tim and I really started just kind of gathering all of those together and we divvied them up to try and look into them. Now, Larry Nasser's name stood out to us because it had sort of come up just in, in terms of he was a prominent figure in gymnastics during the earlier part of our investigation. So we recognized the name and who he was. And so that was something that we were particularly interested in. We didn't really shift our focus to digging more deeply into those allegations 
until we received a call from an unrelated individual who said the same thing had happened to her. So at that point, you got your the second story together, which focused in on Nasser, and I believe that was published in mid-September. At that point, could you ever have imagined, I'll start with you, Marissa, that we would be here a year later with a hun- the breadth of it, the scope of it, 150 victims who have come forward, all of these court cases. Did you have any idea that it was this big, Marissa? I don't think we had any idea of the scope of how many women and girls would come forward. I will say that we did realize that it was bigger than the two cases that we'd written about in the first story, sharing Rachel's story and sharing Jamie's story in that first piece that we did, we knew that that wasn't all of it because USA Gymnastics and their statement to us had said that they'd relieved Nasser of his duties because of athlete concerns. And we knew that the two individuals that we had interviewed were not those two individuals. And we'd also in- interviewed a third female who we did not use in the initial story but she had shared the same experiences and she also was not the person who'd reported it to USA Gymnastics. So we knew that there were quite a few, but we didn't know that it was going to be as significant as it was. And not to say that it's not significant. One person is significant. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The scope of it. Absolutely. And what about you, Rachel? Was, was there, did you have a sense of how wide reaching this was? Yeah, absolutely. Because even at 15, when I realized even part of what Larry had done, I knew by that point that uh, the pedophiles don't have just one victim. And that was part of the reason that I didn't report as I started realizing what had happened because I knew I wasn't the first. Larry was very skilled in what he did. He was very brazen. He was very rehearsed. He knew exactly what he could do and how to do it to get away with it. I was not a test case for him. And so I was convinced even at 15 and 16 that, that I was not the first victim and that there was no way others hadn't raised concerns before me and been silenced. And I was also very convinced that he wouldn't stop. And so over the next 16 years, I was sure that there were little girls walking in his door and being abused quite possibly on a daily basis, because this was something he did very clearly and I very, very regularly. And I knew that. So I I think, honestly, that we have only seen the tip of the iceberg. I don't think we will ever know how deep Larry's sexual abuse reached and how many victims he abused. If you can even put into words what this experience has felt like, both being so open and being so vulnerable about these horrible things, but also seeing actually, after all these years, this man facing the consequences of his actions. You know, it's been incredibly difficult, probably the most difficult season of my life to be honest, to make that choice to give up every shred of privacy and every shred of dignity and to have all of those details known so graphically. I mean, there are, there are pictures of me on the internet demonstrating what Larry did to me. I honestly find that horrific. I still find that horrific. You know, my kids are going to see those pictures someday. There are, you know, my male friends and my male coworkers know things that nobody was ever supposed to know. And I really hate that. I still really hate that, but it's worth it. The cost is worth it. And and I have a choice what I focus on. Marissa, there's still been a, I believe, from my point, a staggering lack of accountability, both from USA Gymnastics and Michigan State. We have seen, you know, the president of USA Gymnastics resigned, but I believe many of the people on the board of directors who were there all these years are still in their positions. At Michigan State, of course, the Kathy the gymnastics coach, and I always mess up the pronunciation of her name, so you will have to correct me, but she, she's the only one at Michigan State we've seen lose their job so far. From your perspective, as someone who's been at this story from the beginning, has there been enough accountability? Do these organizations, these two prominent organizations, realize their role in this? And if not, how do we get to that point? I think time will tell. So you have a new president who is just starting this month for USA Gymnastics. The board, though, as you pointed out, has not changed and has been, through statements, somewhat resistant to accepting culpability. And I'm sure that some of that does have to do with the pending litigation that they're facing. But they did hire outside counsel that issued a lengthy report with 70 recommendations for how they should improve and how they should change their procedures and their policies to reflect best practices. 
And so time will tell if they implement all of those policies and if they not only implement them, but follow them. And I think for Michigan State University, you know, they're still, they've done an internal investigation, which we haven't seen the results on yet, but time will tell how they move forward and what happens the next time that they receive an allegations for both of those organizations and what they do with that allegation when they receive it. Rachel, one of the things about this story for me is that I feel like every time I uncover something horrific, there's five horrific things below it, you know, and it's, it's this, this springboard. It seems like there were so many missteps along the way. What really, from the Michigan State standpoint, is there anything that particularly stands out to you that, that went wrong here that allowed this to continue for this many years? There are so many things that went wrong in both organizations. You know, from MSU standpoint, you really have an overall problem with how they how they view a sexual assault, how they treat sexual assault victims, and their understanding of, of what to do with those complaints and of, and of how to handle alleged predators. You know, Kathy Collegius is an excellent example. Um, you know, and even Kathy actually did not lose her job over this. She was allowed to voluntarily retire with a full pension. So she she was put on temporary suspension, but then she voluntarily retired with a full pension. So it's a little difficult to say that that even she suffered any real consequences for what she did. But as far back as 1997, Kathy was receiving complaints from two gymnasts, one of whom is speaking publicly, Larissa Boyce, who told Kathy, Larry is penetrating me when he's doing these medical procedures. He's putting his fingers in my vagina. And Kathy immediately assured her that it was legitimate medical treatment. She called Larry up actually, and told him what Larissa and this other gymnast were saying. And then she required the girls to go back to him. And she even told Larissa that, you know, I could file a report on this, but that there would be very serious consequences, not just for Larry, but for her. You know, and so she, she silenced two sexual assault victims three years before I walked into Larry's door. You know, and you had a repeat performance with at least two other women, a runner and then a softball player, Tiffany Thomas Lopez, who was on the MSU softball team. Both of those women individually reported to different athletic trainers and both times their complaints about Larry that he was penetrating them during medical exams went up some to some degree up the chain of command to some athletic supervisors. How far up that chain of command, we don't know because Michigan State is not releasing that internal report. But in both cases, again, just like with Kathy Clagis, these women who were, were reporting sexual assault were assured that they were receiving legitimate medical treatment. Now, in 2014, when a woman came forward and, and again said that Larry was sexually assaulting her under the guise of medical treatment, Larry's response to that was that he did not penetrate her. And his colleagues' response is that Larry did not penetrate. And the, the 2014 Title IX investigation said the woman did not, quote unquote, understand the nuanced differences between sexual assault and a medical exam. And when I came forward only two years later, he saw this exact same attitude once again. You know, Dean William Strample was directly involved in helping clear Larry of the charges in 2014, of the concerns in 2014. And when I came forward with my testimony, he immediately sent Larry an email saying, good luck, I'm on your side. You know, and at the point that I came forward, I came forward with national and international medical journal articles showing that what Larry was doing was not medical treatment. I had three pelvic floor specialists on record who were willing to vouch for me and were willing to speak to the police. I had prior disclosures that were contained in my medical records showing that I had been telling the same story since 2004 that I had been saying Larry was penetrating me and, and describing what he was doing that was in my medical records in 2004. I had a letter of reference from a district attorney vouching for my character. I came forward with a significant amount of evidence. And Stramble's response to that was to email Larry and say, good luck, I'm on your side. And then when I came forward with my video testimony, he actually sent that around to the office and sent it to the MSU provost, and he mocked it. He laughed that it was the cherry on the cake of his day. So when you look at this overall picture of how MSU has handled complaints of sexual assault, it's been abhorrent. It's been absolutely abhorrent. And MSU's response to that is, well, we didn't deliberately cover up. We didn't know Larry was a sexual abuser. Yeah, and that's a smokescreen. That's a red herring. Because enabling doesn't usually look like someone saying, oh, you're a rapist and, ra and rape is okay, so we're going to let you keep on raping. Yeah, that, that's not what enabling looks like. Enabling looks like deliberate indifference. It looks like extreme negligence. It looks like silencing the victims. It looks like an immediate presumption of innocence for the perpetrator. It looks like everything you saw at MSU. And they have absolutely refused to acknowledge any of that. Why do you think, I mean, you've been an investigative journalist for, what, 12 years now, I believe? So you've seen so many different cases of institutional cover-ups and, you know, denials and willful ignorance. 
What about our culture allows things like this to be covered up for so long? Have you been able to pinpoint any anything that kind of ties these some of these stories together? Do we just not want to believe the worst in the people that we know? That's certainly a piece of it. I mean, there are so many different layers. There's Rachel talked about it earlier. Larry was a very charismatic individual and he was the buddy for a lot of gymnasts. He was the guy that when their coaches were being hard on them, you know, trying to encourage them to excel, he was the one who would slip them candy. He was the one who would brighten their day or have a joke. And I think that certainly plays into that culture in not just youth sports, but in all sorts of venues. I think there's also, you know, for some, not all people, a liability aspect. They know that if it's reported, that it will be in the public domain and that there is a potential for adverse effects, whether it's a civil lawsuit or just bad public relations, things like that. I think also friends, you know, they know him, they like him. So it's not just that the other people like him, but that the officials in positions of power like them as well. So I think there's just so many different layers to it that each situation, it really depends on those specific dynamics to explain why it happens. But it's not exclusive to youth sports. It's not exclusive to gymnastics, to Hollywood. It really is happening, unfortunately, everywhere. Rachel, what is the one thing that you hope that people take away from this case? You say that it's worth it to come forward. And obviously, you know, Nasser getting, you know, what's coming to him is is a big part of that, I'm sure. But what is the one thing that you wish would change or that people would understand? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, Larry being brought to justice and particularly not being able to prey on on little girls anymore is huge seeing other victims be able to understand what's happened to them and to to begin to find their voice and to reach for healing is just incredible for me to see. But from a societal standpoint and a cultural standpoint, the lesson that we really need to learn here is the same lesson we need to learn everywhere else. We need to be willing to speak against our own community because speaking against our own community is the thing that people are most unlikely to do. And it's the thing we most desperately need. Yeah, abusers always have some sort of community that surrounds them. It may be a sports community, it may be an, you know, a university community, it may be a political community, a religious community, it might be a physical community, but there is always a community that surrounds the abuser. And victims who are who are abused by that person know that the community response when they come forward is going to be excruciatingly painful. They know that the community that is closest to the abuser is going to surround that abuser and is going to do everything they can to protect him, oftentimes simply because they just don't understand how it could be true that this person would do that sort of thing, or because there are some shared values between the abuser and the community that the community does not want to jeopardize by letting the truth be known. But the people who are surrounding the abuser in that community, they're the ones that are most able to make a difference. They're the ones that are most able to stop a predator. They're the ones who are close enough to see the warning signs and to support the victims. And yet they're the ones least likely to do it. Well, look, thank you both so, so much for talking with me today. Rachel, I know going to be at the trial next week. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yep, I will be there. And then I hope that you will get some peace for a while and get to rest and spend time with your family this holiday season. And Marissa, what is the best way for people to follow your work? And do you think we're going to see anything more about this USA Gymnastics story? Mark and Tim and I are going to continue to be following all of the developments relating to USA Gymnastics and Larry Nasser, as well as our colleague, Matt, who works at the Lansing State Journal. You can find all of our work on IndyStar.com. You can follow us on you know Twitter as well, or Facebook, whatever's easiest for you. But you know, just to, I guess, follow up with what Rachel said, I also hope that people throughout this process and throughout all of the other things that have been happening feel like they do have a voice, whether they choose to use it to be public or they choose to report it to law enforcement, but that they feel that they will be heard and believed. Okay, so <laughs> Jessica, Brendan, Amira, we've just listened to this the interview with Marissa and Rachel. What are your biggest takeaways? What are, what are your thoughts, Jess? Man, I mean, I 
thought so many things. I was so impressed with both of these women. Listening to Rachel in particular, I mean, it's always, as, as someone who works with survivors to tell their stories in a public setting, I was really, I felt a very emotional response to her description of what it has meant, the cost that this has meant to her as a, you know, a private citizen to be this public, to talk about what she's given up in order to make sure that this man is held accountable after decades when lots of people made sure he was not held accountable. That was, man, listening to her, but she finished by making sure to say that it's worth it, right? And I don't know, the other thing that I was really struck by was the part where she talked about how, I mean, this is the quote that I wrote down, quote, Larry was very skilled. I was not a test case for him. And she said that she knew that when she was 15 years old, that she could understand because of how slick he was with how he did this to her. And just, I mean, the thing about the Nasser case, and Lindsay, your work on this has made this like incredibly clear, just all the people in power who knew and understood what was happening and just let this keep happening to these teenage girls that this man had access to. And I don't know, there was something about hearing her say, like, I could just tell was, I don't know. I wish I could be more articulate about it. No, I agree. That was one of the most chilling parts. One of the most chilling things she said, I think, because I wasn't really expecting it. You know, I wasn't expecting that answer. And I wasn't expecting her to be so clearly aware at such a young age of how widespread this was. You know, I, I was I was anticipating a different different reaction. And that's that's my bias coming into it of the, maybe hoping maybe it's easier if this doesn't seem I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing easy about this. Amira? Yeah, I was also, you know, profoundly affected by Rachel's testimony here and how she described, you know, her mother being in the same room. Yes. And But the thing that really stuck out to me was this idea, her shock and her assumption, right, that there's no way that all these people could know and allow this to happen. And how... Just thinking about that and thinking about one of the things that happens with survivors, it's not just a loss of, you know, personhood or, or feelings of control, but it's a loss of faith in these institutions that you've put faith in, that you've had ideas about. It's a whole reframing of how you think people are supposed to protect people. And that, to me, was really heartbreaking and also spoke to the kind of pervasiveness of the of the structures and their inadequacy or, you know, lack of care for these vulnerable women, girls, really. Yeah. Brenda? Yeah, I had a, I had a lot of reactions and I was amazed by the composure of both women. And it struck me that it's a lot more important than sometimes we think to have investigative journalism. I mean, obviously, Rachel's testimony is needs to be centered, but the ability to uh, forward and how she she came forward when she heard about reporting, you know, and so it is so important. And I know it's triggering and it's upsetting. And for a lot of us, it makes for a really bad week. But I was really struck by how it prompted her to come forward and do this incredibly brave thing and how important it is to have women journalists, how important it is to put funding, care, money, resources. I don't know how it, it works because I'm not a full-time journalist, but it's got to be that we we put some stock in that because otherwise, you know, she wouldn't have come forward. Yeah, Amira? Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that there's a long history there of women testifying and and looking around and finding and investigating sexual assault. And I think we'd be remiss in this moment with it just being the anniversary of Rosa Parks' mm -hmm. decision to sit on the Montgomery bus and spark a boycott to highlight her years of rape justice activism in the Jim Crow South on behalf of Black women. And I think that there's a long, long history of women getting in the trenches, finding the story and not letting it go, holding it with both hands and continuing to hammer at it until it gets to highlight the voices of the people who need to be heard. And I think that's a really, really important legacy that Marissa is carrying out here. I agree. And just really quickly, I, I actually read this in a different interview that she did, but she talked a little bit, little bit about the case in Georgia that she that was the first that kind of opened the doors to this. She found out 
about that case file. She got a tip about this case file in Georgia that was against a USA Gymnastics doctor. And because of the way the case was going, they were going to close that file to the public the next day. So mm. in, so she got on a plane that very day and went down to get access wow. to the case file. And look, all the kudos to Indy Star for this investigative unit because that's a lot of money to spend for a last minute flight, you know. And, and this is another look. We have to support local journalism because I will tell you that the Indy Star's work on this and the Lansing Strait State Journal. There's one reporter there. His name is Matt. I'll put his full name and everything in the episode notes, but they have just done tremendous work investigating this and deserve all the credit. Jess? Yeah, and I found that in a lot of the work I do, like when I covered the Vanderbilt case, I went to Nashville and I interviewed a bunch of people in, in person, but I relied on the Tennessean, right. their local media, and that's been true for Florida State coverage. Like I, yeah, local media, man. I I have a couple of last things that I was thinking about while listening to this. One was Marissa's point at the end about like time will tell whether or not Michigan State is better. And this is something that I think a lot about. People ask me a lot about this with Baylor. Like, are they better now? How do we know? And it's so hard, right? Like, this is one of the most difficult things about this kind of work is like, how will we know it's different? If it's good, we might never know, right? Because like, who's reporting if things are fine? And so that's a hard part of this. The time will tell part of this. But also silence isn't super comforting right now because we know that there was so much silence before. So it's it's hard. You're right. It's hard to say. Yeah. And then the other thing that Rachel said that I'm going to carry with me for a really long time was right towards the end when she talked about what enabling looks like. And she said that amazing thing about how it's not saying I'm okay with rape. It's having deliberate indifference, extreme negligence, silencing victims. Like that's what enabling looks like. And that's the kind of stuff that's easy to turn away from and to ignore and to not pay attention to. And that's why it works so well. And I just thought that definition was very powerful. And again, a a thing I think a lot about, but she just said it so well. She's so well-spoken. And I mean, you know, stressing that you have to be willing. You're not really tested on any of this until you have to call out people in your own community, you know, until you have to realize that that person right next to you. And look, we're seeing this in a lot broader cultural context right now. We're seeing newsrooms having to report on people within their newsroom who are, you know, been accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment. You know, we're seeing in Congress the inability to, you know, actually, you know, advocate for a lot of these congressional members who've been accused of horrible things to go forward. And one of the chilling, so I wrote a piece this past week about it was focused solely on Michigan State's missteps within this case and kind of what would accountability look like at Michigan State kind of through the NCAA and through Title IX and through their board of trustees. So I'll link that in the show notes as well, of course. But one of the most chilling details from that reporting, and when I say reporting, most of this was researching the the local reporting that had already been done. But one of those chilling details was that the gymnastics coach, so this was in 2016, after the Indy Star investigation on USA Gymnastics, after the Indy Star investigation on Nasser that, that brought forward a couple of victims, after Nasser was already fired from and let go from Michigan State, a year after he was let go from USA Gymnastics and because of an FBI investigation, the MSU gymnastics coach called the team meeting at that university for the gymnastics team. She passionately defended Nasser and she asked the gymnast to sign a card for him if they so chose. There were women on that team who had been molested by Larry Nasser. Jeez. And I just, I don't even know what to, what do you say to that? And then she got to keep her job until the following February when she was suspended for a day and then voluntarily resigned. So there's just a lot of work to do here. Whew. Okay, let's move on. We're going to switch gears here a little bit. And- a little bit, yeah. <laughs> not that different. <laughs> I mean, look, there's still bad stuff. There's still corruption. But I wanted to make sure there was a segment where we could kind of channel our rage. Institution of higher education, perhaps? Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whenever I'm looking to channel my rage, I look no farther than the NCAA. So. <laughs> 
Okay, there is no time. Look, we talk about the NCAA's corruption here year in, year out, especially when it comes to, you know, a lot of college football and college basketball. I mean, if you've listened to the show, you know that this is no new topic. But there is no season where the corruption of this system of amateurism is more egregious than during bowl season (laughs) for college football. Because you see these – it's when all the coaching firings and rehirings go. It's when you see these coaches leave these kids high and dry as these kids are playing bowl games and you know just going through you know putting their bodies on the lines for games that are pretty meaningless just for their school to earn money i mean you just see so much ridiculous and speaking of ridiculous the tennessee coaching search has been like it's just been an example of the most absurd ways that this goes. It started earlier this week with Greg Schiano, former head coach at Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where he was universally hated by journalists, players, everyone, and not a good coach. <laughs> He's recently been at Ohio State, and he was an assistant to Urban Meyer. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, last Sunday, Hours after we had recorded our last episode, (laughs) Tennessee announces out of nowhere that he's going to be the next head coach. Jess, maybe you can take us through (laughs) what happened next. (laughs) Yeah, fans were really, really angry. I and like, and they were angry. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't totally understand all the intricacies of Tennessee fandom. And apparently they love John Gruden and they really thought he was going to be their coach. And so they were particularly mad that they had hired anyone else. But also that Shiano has this really horrible reputation. I think it goes back to his Rutgers days. Followed him up into Tampa. And that he deserves. Like, I mean... The Tennessee fans were were right to like not want this guy to be their coach, but they were they kept saying the, the sort of easy excuse here was that Shiano was an assistant in at Penn State during the Sandusky years, and his name was brought up during all the the Sandusky stuff, but he was never prosecuted or formally charged. It's possible maybe that he knew and never said anything. I think we all know that. It's possible <laughs> and that he never said anything. But he's denied all of that. And that's this became the excuse, like that he was morally bankrupt and therefore could not be the head coach of their football team, which made me so mad. You guys, like I can't even explain to you, like when I go around to talk, which I do a lot about college football and sexual violence, one of the coaches that I talk about is Butch Jones, who is now the former coach of Tennessee because of the horrific way that this coach handled multiple players being accused of sexual violence, two in particular. In that case, I mean, it's just like, in that case, not only did the police call Butch Jones before they went to collect evidence from the players' apartments, but there was another player, a third player, who helped that woman who had reported. He helped her get to the hospital after she says she was harmed. And in retaliation, a player, I think, punched that guy. and, And Butch Jones called him a traitor. This is what the guy mm. has said in an affidavit. <laughs> and no one seemed to care. Like, I I felt like when all that happened, I was just screaming into the wind. I mean, I wrote a piece for Vice about it. I was so upset about everything that happened. That player then transferred. I think he went to UTC, Tennessee, Chattanooga. And this idea that, like, they have some moral positioning because Shiano had some kind of connection to Sandusky, the whole thing was bonkers to watch in real time. And they ended up having to fire the athletic director because everyone was so mad about how everything messed up. No one wants to be coached there next. I don't know who's going <laughs> to no be. No one. No one. No one. <laughs> Like, there are are programs who are much worse than Tennessee. But there's, like, rumors that now the new AD is Phil Fulmer, and apparently there are rumors that, like, he made all of this really horrible so that, like, they would fire the AD so he could get the new job. And the other thing I want to say about this is that because of all of this, Tennessee now owes the former AD, John Curry, $18 million – or no, they owe him $5 million. Butch Jones and his staff – are expected to receive $13 million, eight of those going to Jones. So they, like, Tennessee's going to have to pay $18 million in buyouts for all of this, and then they're going to hire new people that they're going to pay a ton of money to. So the whole thing is just, just, ugh, it makes me so mad. Ugh, Brenda, do you want to yell a little bit? I do a little bit. <laughs> I would just like to point out that according to Tennessee State as a state, 22% of its children under age 18 live below the poverty line. And the mm. coaching search itself is costing $13, 14000000 million. I don't know, Sports Illustrated did that. And Jess just explained some of that in the way that it'll break down. So like, what the hell? 
Like what? Yeah. What? what? (laughs) Like what? That's a public institution that needs to be publicly accountable. And I mean, I I know we can't get back to Michigan State and that's a painful rabbit hole. But those those, you know, people on the board are elected by the people in that state. And those are public funds. So those people that live below the poverty line that pay a sales tax every day or whatever it is. I mean, they're all contributing to a particular system that's supposed to provide some kind of safety net and instead rips it away and spends it on these bozos. And I'm just like, what? So I guess that's where I'm at right now. It's just like public money for, you know, and then the players end up not getting anything in her and, and on public assistance. So, wow. That's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm so flamed. I'm so flamed. Like, I'm smoke is coming out of my ears. Oh my god, Amira! Indeed, it's that <laughs> last point that had me raging. Watching Jimbo Fisher and his oh. massive, oh. Sa- like I can't even wrap my head around it. And I think it's so frustrating because, like you said, it comes at the same time where people are out, you know, giving blood and sweat and and time and preparation, and they're not getting paid a dime. It like just this is the moment. This in March Madness when you just like are screaming, "Pay the players!" Every moment of the day, like, and for Jimbo Fisher, did you? You see, he reportedly didn't even tell his I players know. he was I leaving. Know. He just put his Christmas tree yes. on the oh, dude, put his Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah, the quarterback for the team tweeted, no call, no text. You could have said something. Oh, Which is what? absolutely wow. ridiculous. Like, you go into these homes yes, and you convince exactly. people to come and play for you and you promise them all of this and you leave. Like, there's no repercussion. Like, it just really, I don't even have words for how frustrating and hypocritical and disgusting frankly it is and the other thing is to see this coming on the heels of this scam tax bill that was pushed through that is going to disproportionately absolutely decimate graduate education all i can think about is all the people around the university players included graduate students lower level academics adjuncts who are fighting tooth and nail for anything anything from the institutions just to sustain and yet you want to go and give all of this money to coaches who aren't even loyal who are going to jump at the next sign of career you know careerism like I just are good they're not that good the most frustration yeah and let's just note like if you're a player and you try to transfer there are all these rules and they try to keep you off the field for a year to punish you for leaving and these coaches like someone said it like Jimbo was like see ya before they even finish the season like he just the season's not over. Exactly. Like, it's just exactly. wild to me. Ugh. Plexipa Burris, who's an NFL player, tweeted this week after as all this was going on. He goes, the great Nick Saban told me not to leave school for the NFL and to finish what I started. And he left before the season was over. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, and it just like sums it up. So but it also reminds us why we have to continue to think about sports as labor, because this yes. idea of controlling labor and controlling bodies, disproportionately bodies of color, particularly in college football and basketball as well as we can even look at professional leagues who do the same same thing right this is you know a a labor issue this is controlling labor whereas the same standards don't apply for coaches who want to take their own careers into their hands yeah and i just really quickly usa today does some of the best work on coaching salaries they keep a really great database and in the the vein of like the most infuriating, which is literally the these coaching buyouts and paying these coaches not to coach. Like they looked at the case of Kansas University. So in 2009, one year after Kansas's last winning season, <laughs> coach March Mangino received a $3 million settlement from oh, Kansas God. after quitting amid allegations that he mistreats players. That helps Kansas avoid a fight for the $6.6 million he would have been owed. Coach Turner Gill succeeded Mangino and went 5-19 and in two seasons before Kansas fired him in 2011 and bought out the remaining $6 million left on his contract. Kansas then turned to Charlie Weiss, the industry legend for making a living off of getting fired. And before Kansas, Notre Dame had terminated Weiss after a 6-6 six and six season in 2009 and paid Weiss more than $16 million to settle his contract. And with the final payout payment remaining at the end of 2015 at Kansas, Weiss did it again. He compiled a 6-22 and 22 record before getting fired Hired in 2014 with more than 5.4 million dollars still owed to him in monthly installments. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
It's so frustrating. Hey, Brenda, do okay, you think it, it, if I could convince you to come to Penn State, <laughs> you'd get a buyout from Hofstra? I would love to make a living off getting fired. But professor, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be really good at that, Brenda. You I could really do, do that. Be no teaching. Just... I, I think... <laughs> no, it is. It is. I think it's shocking to me. We would never, professors don't get anything of the kind. Okay, it is burn pile time. I think we are locked and loaded. Jess. Yeah, I'm going to continue to talk about this labor and exploitation issue in college athletics. So two weekends ago, JT Barrett, Ohio State's quarterback, aggravated a right knee injury before their game against Michigan when he was hit by a cameraman on the sidelines. The following day, Sunday, he had arthroscopic knee surgery. Okay, he had surgery. Four days later, four days later, he fully participated in practice. And on Saturday night, only a week after his injury and six days after surgery, he started in the Big Ten championship game against Wisconsin and ended up playing the entire time. Barrett's coach, Urban Meyer, said that in order to get back this quickly, Barrett was doing 15 hours of treatment a day. He also said of Barrett's quick recovery, quote, that's not normal. It takes a rare individual because there is a pain threshold. When you're talking about 15 hours a day, a day of treatment, which is what he did, I can't say that's normal. I've had players who had similar things happen who are out two, three weeks. Okay, so this is really hard for me. <laughs> like, we know that Barrett is not getting paid for this. We know Ohio State will not be paying for his health care for the residual issues he'll have from the bodily sacrifices that he has made, the sacrifices that make millions from Meyer and the university. Kudos to former Wisconsin offensive lineman and current Cleveland Browns tackle Joe Thomas, who took to Twitter during the Big Ten championship game to express his concerns about Barrett returning to the game so soon after surgery. And now that Twitter allows, like, endless characters, these are long quotes because of his tweets are long. So, quote, this is what Thomas wrote. I would like to see NCAA football get an independent second opinion doctor who can help players make big surgical and medical decisions like they do in the NFL. As a guy who's had a lot of knee surgeries, it's unsettling that JT Barrett had knee surgery a few days ago and is playing today. He continued, quote, oftentimes players don't have knowledge or experience to make big medical decisions that could have a major impact on their life and career. The doctor works for the coach and looks out for his best interest and the player trusts the coach, but nobody is looking out for the player's best interest. He went on to tweet a lot more about this when people were angry at him for suggesting this. But After beating Wisconsin 27-21, Barrett told the sideline reporter, he said that he felt no pain in his knee during the game. And it is possible that Barrett has a high tolerance of pain and was medically good to go six days after knee surgery. It's also possible that he did whatever he needed to do in order to get back on the field because he loves football and Ohio State or knows that he might not be playing many more games in his life. But it's also possible that he felt enormous pressure to do whatever he had to in order to get back on the field because people more powerful than him didn't give him another option. What we know for sure is that college football is so exploitative and it puts winning above everything else and forces everyone within the system to do the same and that coaches ask things of their players that are not in service of the players' long-term health and also just like pay these guys for what they're doing out there. So burn that exploitation. Just burn it. Burn. Burn. Amira. Yeah, I'm going to take us to the NFL, which is never, you know, a good thing. Earlier this week, it was announced that the NFL and the Players Coalition, which has been the group of players advocating around social justice issues and talking about anthem protests, it was announced that they had reached a decision for nearly a $100 million dedicated to, quote, causes considered important to the African-American community, end quote. Right after this, a few players started highlighting their displeasure with this direction of the Players Coalition and this agreement. So Eric Reed, Mike Thomas from the Dolphins, Russell Okung, they basically came out and said, this is a publicity stunt. This is woeful. They called it in debt and disingenuous, basically said this deal is not really $100 million to the problem. It's less than 100, it's around 89 million over seven years, which is basically for these billionaires, quarter of a million dollars 
dollars and there's something in place where they could effectively move that money around from different causes. So, you know, all the breast cancer awareness stuff they do. Or remember when domestic violence was the thing they had to do control on or <laughs> concussions. So all of these kind of ways that they think they can move their brand forward by throwing money like a Band-Aid kind of issue, hoping that it will actually shut down the discussion around it. You're seeing this happen in the same way towards these anthem protests. Not surprisingly, a lot of the players have felt like it's hush money and Mm. have decided that they don't want to pay to shut up. This is essentially a way of getting people for very little expense on the billionaire owner's part to getting players to shut up and stop protesting with this kind of veiled threat that if they aren't going to agree to this deal, kind of being strong-armed into it, then over the summer, the league might be forced to consider uh, anthem ban or something of the Mm. like. And I think the last thing that's really frustrating about it is that the way they set it up was that it was five owners, five players, and two league representatives. But one of the things that is very suspicious about that, it was essentially make a seven versus five decision. So even if they accept the deal, which by all means it looks like they are, there's no guarantee that the players are going to get to have any deciding input or control of where this money is actually going because they don't have the majority, assuming the <laughs> league officials are agreeing with the owner. Wow. So I, this is just a mess. I'm frustrated. And guess what? Colin Kaepernick is still out of a job. So I'm burning Burn. it down. Burn. Woo, jeez, that was good. That felt good. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Sepp Blatter. We love you, Sepp. No, we do not. Okay. So Hope Solo recently accused Blatter of groping her at the an award ceremony in 2013 in Zurich, Switzerland. Now, look, we can talk. There's a lot of problematic things about Hope Solo, which we fully, fully admit here at Burn It All Down. But I think we can all say there's more problematic things about Sepp Blatter <laughs> if we want to talk about problematic people. But this week, Blatter finally responded to these allegations. I'm guessing you can understand why the burn pile is here. It's so absurd, quote, Blatter said. It's absurd for you, for your editorial board, to go on about a theme about this lady. Look at her CV and you'll see I'm right. It's absurd. This is him talking to a newspaper. (laughs) You have to go and look, he said. It's not up to me to declare the difficulties that she has had in her life and why she had all those difficulties. She's not credible to say things like that. It's absurd. It's absurd. Sep Blatter, you moldy, aging old shoe. (laughs) Do you really really want to talk about credibility? You who said that in 2004, female soccer players should wear more feminine clothes like they do in volleyball, who think shaking hands is the best way to end end racism, and that (sighs) football is too macho to have women leaders, Sepp Blatter, whose name is synonymous with corruption and fuckery and bigotry, who even something as laughable as the FIFA Ethics Committee found too corrupt to serve in the game. Look, (laughs) the only thing that's absurd about Hope Solo's allegations is that you think you have the right to question Mm, anyone's mm. credibility, particularly a woman's. Sepp Blatter, I just felt like I need to talk directly to you. Burn it. Burn Burn. 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 Okay, (laughs) Brenda, I'm going to give you two options here. You can either publicly tell us the story you're telling us in Slack right in our (laughs) chat right now about meeting Sepp Blatter, or you can do your burn Maybe I could make it into one really quick. I went to Zurich in 2014, and I was at the FIFA headquarters doing research in the archives, which is a whole nother story about how you get into that vault. And I came up, and I was with a person that worked there at the time that no longer works there because he's also in some kind of legal trouble. And I I came up, and it's, it's seven floors. The headquarters has an elevator that goes seven floors down. Like like the Bat Cave or something so creepy. So I came up for air and there was Seb Blatter and he said, do you want to meet Seb Blatter? And I was like, sure. And he was trying to ask me, he was like, hello, you know, bonjour. And then he, he was trying to ask me if I was a good soccer player. And because he was trying to use <laughs> his body to show me, he ended up oh, kicking God. me in the shins really hard. <laughs> and I was like, ouch. And I didn't, because of my pain, I didn't have time to ask him about the women's game, which segues into my burn pile, which is uh, <laughs> very quickly, which is that this week, it's someone who's been lauded by FIFA, Dana Castellanos. 
a Venezuelan player who is also a Florida State player, Jess. And she has been uh, sort of promoted by FIFA as the next big women's player. And some of the women around the world, including Megan Rapinoe, have complained about that because it shows a sort of lack of knowledge of the women's game. Not that she's not any good. She's brilliant. But just that she's a very young player who is a is a university player. You know, she's an All-American player right now playing for Florida State, not in the NWSL. And Venezuela has not had a particularly good national team. And she put out there a dance that she does after a goal. And Spanish-speaking media picked it up this week. It went all over the place. And they called it her sensual dance. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a big deal if they also ever reported on her play. The point is there's nothing about their analyzing what makes her a young, great player, but just what makes her a sexy, hot player. And of course, this comes right from Seb Blatter and Xiao Havalanche before it. So I want to burn the institutions, but I also want to burn the media that picked this up and, you know, is basically objectifying a really talented player. And so, okay, can we do that? Can we? Can I do them both? Was that okay, Lynn? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> double burn. Double burn for you, Seth Ladder, and burn for everybody. <laughs> All right, our badass women of the week. This week, we have some really great honorable mentions, including Maria Torres, who is attempting to become the first Puerto Rican golfer to earn her LPGA Tour card. Wepa! Yes! <laughs> Vera Powell, a Dutch legend who is named the head coach of the Houston Dash, now the third female coach in the National Women's Soccer League, alongside Lara Harvey, who is now with the Utah Royals after five seasons with the Seattle Reign, and Denise Reddy, who had recently been hired as the head coach of Sky Blue. We also have Sarah McFadden, a Northern Ireland soccer player who eight weeks after having her first child was back and started in the November 28th game against Slovakia. Holy crap. <laughs> and winner. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. Allison Gordon, who this week became the first female winner of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame's Jack Granny Award. Friend of the show, fellow flamethrower Stacey May Fowles has written extensively about Allison Gordon and what she has meant to baseball reporting in general and especially to female baseball reporters. We're going to link Stacey's notes in the show. Okay, friends, it's been an intense one. Let's talk quickly. Good things. Amira? Yeah, my good thing is that my middle child turned five this Aww, week. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Jackson. And his his newfound favorite thing is to go to Penn State women volleyball games. So <gasps> we spent the afternoon at his birthday watching the first round of the of postseason play. And we got to witness Penn State defeated Howard three to one and three sets to one. But between Simone and Haley and Nia and the black women on our team and Howard's team of black women, I was just so full of black girl magic, killing these volleyball plays. It was so fun. And to see Jackson like absolutely getting his entire life from it was amazing so happy 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 birthday to my sweet boy and congratulations to Penn State who's moving on to the third round next week yay two good things Jess yeah and happy birthing day to you Amira oh thank you yay (laughs) so this last week I had to write a recommendation letter for a high school student I've been mentoring in journalism for the last year and a half which meant I had to google how to write a recommendation letter because it had been a really long time he's a senior now he's going to college next year And in thinking about what to say about him and what all we've done while we've worked together, I was reminded once more of how very much I have enjoyed this relationship, both like teaching him and learning from him. And I really only said yes, because I don't know how to say no to this mentoring, but it turned out to be like one of the highlights of my life. So shout out to Aro, that's the student, and to just mentoring in general and how much joy it has brought me. Yay. Yay. All right, Bren? I am so happy that the FIFA trials are going on because they're hilarious. (laughs) They're hilarious and they're giving me life right now because every time I think my, like, I'm ridiculous or some some problem is ridiculous, then I remember there's FIFA trials. And so far, (laughs) jurors have been dismissed for sleeping. There's sandwiches involved. There's been a lot of... (laughs) 
Wait, what? Yeah, like salads and sandwiches. Apparently, the jurors have been eating salads and sandwiches so much that they're not clear that they've heard testimony. And I just, I feel the defendants who are obviously guilty of everything. I have have this circus where the trial that they have is so stacked against them that people can't hear because they're eating salad sandwiches and sleeping is awesome. <laughs> so, oh so my that's goodness. Good in my that's incredible. Delightfully watching people that's get incredible. there. I'm going to build on that a little bit and just say in general, this tiny, tiny crescent of a wave. It is, you know, it's not a tidal wave like people are saying, but of seeing some cis older white men actually getting like, some <laughs> sort of facing some sort of consequences <laughs> for their horrible actions. I do not want you to ask me when I'm going to forgive them or how they can redeem themselves. I do not want to talk about that. I want to just for I don't want to talk about whether the pendulum's swinging too far. I just want to one for one one minute, maybe a day, just savor this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it has been so it's so rare it's like a unicorn we're seeing a unicorn and let's just stare at it friends let's not question where it came from let's just for a second enjoy it <laughs> save the unicorns <laughs> all right thank you all so much that's it for this episode 31 of burn it all down which is a little super size but we hope you enjoyed it we want to thank hofstra university for their support of the podcast If you want to see more of us, you can go to Burn It All Down Pod at our website, burnitallpoddown.com, and our Facebook. Our Twitter, because Twitter limits you, is just Burn It Down Pod. And we want to thank you all so, so much for your support these first 31 episodes. We are going to shut down our GoFundMe campaign today, and that allowed us to launch and make it through 31 episodes, and we raised over $4,000, and we are forever indebted. We have a really exciting announcement coming for you all next week about the next steps for Burn It All Down. Fellow flamethrowers, we're just in awe. We are also taking ideas for Winter Olympics, stories you want to see us cover, people you want to see us interview. We're starting to plan for the future, friends. That's all for now. I'm Lindsay Gibbs with Amira Rose Davis, Brenda, Elsie, and Jessica Luther. Keep throwing those flames. Hey, hey,